0: CHAPTER THREE. THE CHEROKEES MARK THEIR MAN. Her Majesty's Theatre is brilliant this evening. Diamonds and beauty in tier above tier look out from the amber-curtained boxes. The stalls are full, and the pit is crammed. In Fop's Alley there is scarcely standing room, Indeed, one gentleman remarks to another that if pandemonium is equally hot and crowded, he will turn Methodist parson in his old age and give his mind to drinking at tea-meetings. The gentleman who makes this remark is neither more nor less than a distinguished member of the Cheerfuls, the domino player alluded to some chapters back. He is standing talking to Richard, and to see him now, with an opera glass in his hand, his hair worn in a manner conforming with the usages of society, and only in a modified degree suggesting that celebrated hero of the Newgate calendar and modern romance, Mr. John Shepherd, a dress coat, patent leather boots, and the regulation white waistcoat. You would think he had never been tipsy or riotous in his life. This gentleman is Mr. Percy Cordoner. All the Cherokees are more or less literary, and all the Cherokees have, more or less, admission to every place of entertainment, from Her Majesty's Theatre to the meetings of the members of the P.R. But what brings Richard to the opera tonight? And who is that not very musical-looking little gentleman at his elbow? Will they all be here? asked Dick of Mr. Cordoner. Every one of them, unless Splitters is unable to tear himself away from his nightly feast of blood and blue fire at the Vic. His piece has been performed fourteen times, and it's my belief he's been at every representation, and that he tears his hair when the actors leave out the gems of the dialogue and drop their H's. They do drop their H's over the water, he continues, lapsing into a reverie. When our compositors are short of type, they go over and sweep them up. You're sure they'll be here then, Percy? Every one of them, I tell you. I'm whipper-in, They're to meet at the oyster shop in the Haymarket, you know the place, where there's a pretty girl and fresh Colchester's. Don't charge you anything extra for the lemon, and you can squeeze her hand when she gives you the change. They're sure to come in here two at a time and put their mark upon the gentleman in question. Is he in the house yet, old fellow? Richard turns to the quiet little man at his elbow, who is our friend, Mr. Peters, and asks him a question. He only shakes his head in reply. "'No, he is not here yet,' says Dick. "'Let's have a look at the stage "'and see what sort of stuff this Signor Moschetti is made of.' "'I shall cut him up on principle,' says Percy, "'and the better he is, the more I shall cut him up on another principle.' "'There is a great deal of curiosity "'about this new tenor of continental celebrity. "'The opera is a Lucia, "'and the appearance of Edgardo is looked forward to with anxiety.' "'presently the hero of the square-cut coat and jack-boot enters. "'He's a handsome fellow, with a dark southern face and an easy manner. "'His voice is melody itself. "'The rich notes roll out in a flood of sweetness, "'without the faintest indication of effort. "'Though Richard pretends to look at the stage, "'though perhaps he does try to direct his attention that way, "'his pale face, his wandering glance, and his restless underlip "'show him to be greatly agitated.' "'He is waiting for that moment when the detective shall say to him, "'There is the murderer of your uncle. "'There is the man for whose guilt you have suffered "'and must suffer till he is brought to justice.' "'The first act of the opera seemed endless to Daredevil Dick, "'while his philosophical friend, Mr. Cardoner, "'looked on as coolly as he would have done at an earthquake "'or the end of the world "'or any other trifling event of that nature.' The curtain has fallen upon the first act when Mr. Peters lays his hand on Richard's arm and points to a box on the grand tier. A gentleman and lady and a little boy have just taken their seats. The gentleman, as becomes him, sits with his back to the stage and faces the house. He lifts his opera glass to take a leisurely survey of the audience. Percy puts his glass into Richard's hand and with a hearty, courage, old boy, "'watches him as he looks for the first time "'at his deadliest enemy. "'And is that calm, aristocratic and serene face "'the face of a murderer? "'The shifting blue eyes and the thin-arched lips "'are not discernible from this distance. "'But through the glass the general effect of the face "'is very plainly seen, "'and there is no fear that Richard will fail to know its owner again "'whenever and wherever he may meet him.' Mr. Cordoner, after deliberate inspection of the personal attractions of the Count de Merol, remarks with less respect than indifference, "'Well, the beggar is by no means bad-looking, but he looks a determined scoundrel. He'd make a first-rate light comedy villain for a Port St. Martin drama. I can imagine him in hessian boots poisoning all his relations, and laughing at the police when they come to arrest him.' "'Shall you know him again, Percy?' asked Richard." "'Among an army of soldiers, every one of them dressed in the same uniform,' replies his friend. "'There is something unmistakable about that pale, thin face. "'I'll go and bring the other fellows in, "'that they may all be able to swear to him when they see him.' "'In groups of two and three, the Cherokees strolled into the pit "'and were conducted by Mr. Cordoner, "'who to serve a friend could on a push be almost active, "'to the spot where Richard and the detective stood.' One after another, they took a long look, through the most powerful glass they could select, at the tranquil features of Victor de Moreau. Little did that gentleman dream of this amateur band of police formed for the special purpose of the detection of the crime he was supposed to have committed. One by one, the cheerfuls register the Count's handsome face upon their memories, and with a hearty shake of the hand, each man declares his willingness to serve Richard whenever and wherever he may see a chance, however faint or distant, of so doing. And all this time the Count is utterly unmoved. Not quite so unmoved, though, when in the second act he recognizes in the Edgardo, the new tenor, the hero of the night, his old acquaintance of the Parisian-Italian opera, the chorus-singer and mimic, "'Monsieur Paul Mousset. "'This skillful workman does not care about meeting with a tool "'which, once used, were better thrown aside and forever done away with. "'But this signor Paolo Moschetti is neither more nor less "'than the slovenly, petite-fair-drinking, domino-playing chorus singer "'at a salary of thirty francs a week. "'His genius, which enabled him to sing an aria "'in perfect imitation of the fashionable tenor of the day,' has also enabled him, with a little industry and a little less wine-drinking and gambling, to become a fashionable tenor himself, and Milan, Naples, Vienna, and Paris testify to his triumphs. And all this time, Valérie de Marolle looks on a stage such as that on which, years ago, she so often saw the form that she loved. That faint resemblance, that likeness in his walk, voice, and manner— which Mousset has to Gaston de Lancy strikes her very forcibly. It is no great likeness, except when the mimic is bent on representing the man he resembles. Then, indeed, as we know, it is remarkable. But at any time it is enough to strike a bitter pang to this bereaved and remorseful heart, which in every dream and every shadow is only too apt to recall that unforgotten past. The Cherokees, meanwhile, expressed their sentiments pretty freely about Monsieur Raymond de Marolles, and discussed divers' schemes for the bringing of him to justice. Splitters, whose experience as a dramatic writer suggested to him every possible kind of mode but a natural one, proposed that Richard should wait upon the Count, when convenient, at the hour of midnight, disguised as his uncle's ghost, and confound the villain in the stronghold of his crime— meaning Park Lane. This sentence was verbatim from a playbill, as well as the whole very available idea, Mr. Splitter's notions of justice being entirely confined to the retributive or poetical in the person of a gentleman with a very long speech and two pistols. The smasher's outside, said Percy Cordoner. He wants to have a look at our friend as he goes out, that he may reckon him up you better let him go into the Count's peepers with his left dick and damage his beauty. It's the best chance you'll get. No, no, I tell you, Percy, that man shall stand where I stood. That man shall drink to the dregs the cup I drank when I stood in the criminal dock at Slopperton and saw every eye turn towards me with execration and horror and knew that my innocence was of no avail to sustain me in the good opinion "'of one creature who had known me from my very boyhood. "'Except the cheerfuls,' said Percy. "'Don't forget the cheerfuls.' "'When I do, I shall have forgotten all on this side of the grave. "'You may depend, Percy. "'No, I have some firm friends on earth, and here is one.' "'And he laid his hand on the shoulders of Mr. Peters, "'who still stood at his elbow. "'The opera was concluded,' and the Count de Marolle and his lovely wife rose to leave their box. Richard, Percy, Splitters, two or three more of the Cherokees, and Mr. Peters left the pit at the same time and contrived to be at the box entrance before Raymond's party came out. At last the Count de Marolle's carriage was called. Raymond descended the steps with his wife on his arm, her little boy clinging to her left hand. "'She's a splendid creature,' said Percy. "'But there's a spice of devilry in those glorious dark eyes. "'I wouldn't be her husband for a trifle if I happened to offend her.' "'As the Count and Countess crossed from the doors of the opera house "'to their carriage, a drunken man came reeling past, "'and before the servants or policemen standing by could interfere, "'stumbled against Raymond de Morrel, "'and in doing so knocked his hat off. "'He picked it up immediately,' and muttering some unintelligible apology, returned it to Raymond, looking as he did so very steadily in the face of Monsieur de Morrel. The occurrence did not occupy a moment, and the Count was too finished a gentleman to make any disturbance. This man was the smasher. As the carriage drove off, he joined the group under the colonnade, perfectly sober by this time. "'I've had a jolly good look at him, Mr. Marwood,' he said, "'and I'd swear to him after forty rounds in the ring, "'which is apt sometimes to take a little of the cupid out of a gent. "'He's not a bad-looking cove on the whole, and looks game. "'He's rather slight-built, but he might make that up in science "'and dance a pretty quadrille round the chap he was put up against, being active. "'I see the cut upon his forehead, Mr. Peters, as you told me to take notice of,' "'he said, addressing the detective,' "'He didn't get that in a fair stand-up fight, "'leastways not from an Englishman. "'When you cross the water for your antagonist, "'you don't know what you may get.' "'He got it from an Englishwoman, though,' said Richard. "'Did he now? "'Ah, that's the worst of the softer sect. "'You see, sir, you never know where they'll have you. "'They're awful deficient in science, to be sure, "'but Lord bless you, they make it up with the will.' "'And the left-handed one rubbed his nose.' "'He had been married during his early career "'and was in the habit of saying "'that ten rounds inside the ropes was a trifle "'compared with one round in your own back parlour "'when your missus had got your knowledge-box in chancery "'against the corner of the mantelpiece "'and was marking a dozen different editions "'of the Ten Commandments on your complexion "'with her bunch of fives. "'Come, gentlemen,' said the hospitable smasher, "'what do you say to a Welsh rarebit "'and a bottle of bitter at my place?' We're as full as we can hold downstairs, for the Finsbury Fizzers trainer has come up from Newmarket, and his backers is hearing anecdotes of his doings for the last interesting week. They talk of dropping down the river on Tuesday for the great event between him and the Atlantic alligator, and the excitement's tremendous. Our barmaid's hands is blistered with working at the engines. So come round and see the game, gentlemen, and if you've any loose cash you'd like to put upon the Fizzer, I can get you decent odds.' considering he's the favorite. Richard shook his head. He would go home to his mother, he said. He wanted to talk to Peters about the day's work. He shook hands heartily with his friends, and as they strolled off to the Smashers, walked with them as far as Charing Cross, and left them at the corner that led into quiet Spring Gardens. In the clubroom of the Cherokees that night, the members renewed the oath they had taken on the night of Richard's arrival and formally inaugurated themselves as Daredevil Dick's secret police. Chapter 4 The Captain, the Chemist, and the Lasker In the drawing-room of a house in a small street leading out of Regent Street are assembled, the morning after the Opera House, three people. It is almost difficult to imagine three persons more dissimilar than those who compose this little group on a sofa near the open window, at which the autumn breeze comes blowing in over boxes of dusty London flowers, reclines a gentleman, whose bronzed and bearded face, and the military style even of the loose morning undress which he wears, proclaim him to be a soldier. A very handsome face it is, this soldier's, although darkened not a little by a tropical sun.' and a good deal shrouded by the thick black moustache and beard which conceal the expression of the mouth and detract from the individuality of the face. He is smoking a long cherry-stemmed pipe, the bowl of which rests on the floor. A short distance from the sofa on which he is lying, an Indian servant is seated on the carpet who watches the bowl of the pipe, ready to replenish it the moment it fails and every now and then glances upward to the grave face of the officer with a look of unmistakable affection in his soft black eyes. The third occupant of the little drawing-room is a pale, thin, studious-looking man who is seated at a cabinet in a corner away from the window amongst papers and books which are heaped in a chaotic pile on the floor about him. Strange books and papers these are, "'mathematical charts inscribed with figures "'such as, perhaps, neither Newton nor Laplace ever dreamed of, "'volumes in old warm-eaten bindings, "'and written in strange languages "'long since dead and forgotten upon this earth. "'But they all seem familiar to this pale student, "'whose blue spectacles bend over pages of crabbed Arabic "'as intently as the eyes of a boarding-school miss "'who devours the last volume of the last new novel.' Now and then he scratches a few figures, or a sign in algebra, or a sentence in Arabic, on the paper before him, and then goes back to the book again, never looking up towards the smoker or his Indian attendant. Presently the soldier, as he relinquishes his pipe to the Indian to be replenished, breaks the silence. "'So the great people of London, as well as of Paris, are beginning to believe in you, Laurent,' he says." The student lifts his head from his work and, turning the blue spectacles towards the smoker, says in his old, unimpassioned manner, "'How can they do otherwise when I tell them the truth? "'These,' he points to the pile of books and papers at his side, "'do not err. "'They only want to be interpreted rightly. "'I may have been sometimes mistaken. "'I have never been deceived.' "'You draw nice distinctions,' Blue Rosé.' Not at all. If I have made mistakes in the course of my career, it has been from my own ignorance, my own powerlessness, to read these aright, not from any shortcoming in the things themselves. I tell you, they do not deceive. But will you ever read them aright? Will you ever fathom to the very bottom this dark gulf of forgotten science? Yes, I am on the right road. I only pray to live long enough to reach the end. And then? Then it will be within the compass of my own will to live forever. Psh! The old story, the old delusion. How strange that the wisest on this earth should have been fooled by it. Make sure that it is a delusion before you say they were fooled by it, Captain. Well, my dear Blue Rosé, heaven forbid that I should dispute with one so learned as you upon so obscure a subject. I am more at home holding a fort against the Indians than holding an argument against Albertus Magnus. You still, however, persist that this faithful Indian here is in some manner or other linked with my destiny. I do. And yet it is very singular. What can connect two men whose experiences in every way are so dissimilar? I tell you again that he will be instrumental in confounding your enemies. You know who they are, or rather, who he is, I have but one. Not two, Captain. Not two. No, Blue Rosé. There is but one on whom I would wreak a deep and deadly vengeance. And for the other? Pity and forgiveness. Do not speak of that. There are some things which even now I am not strong enough to hear spoken of. That is one of them. "'The history of your faithful Indian, there is a singular one, is it not?' asked the student, rising from his books and advancing to the window. "'A very singular one. "'His master, an Englishman, with whom he came from Calcutta, "'and to whom he was devotedly attached. "'I was indeed,' said the Indian, "'in very good English, but with a strong foreign accent. "'This master, a rich man, "'was murdered in the house of his sister by his own nephew.' Very horrible and very unnatural was the nephew hung. No, the jury brought in a verdict of insanity. He was sent to a madhouse, where no doubt he still remains confined. Mujibez was not present at the trial. He had escaped by a miracle with his own life, for the murderer, coming into the little room in which he slept and finding him stirring, gave him a blow on the head, which placed him for some time in a very precarious state. And did you see the murderer's face, Mujabez? asked Monsieur Blue Rose. No. It was dark. I could see nothing. The blow stunned me. When I recovered my senses, I was in the hospital, where I lay for months. The shock had brought on what the doctors called a nervous fever. For a long time, I was utterly incapable of work. When I left the hospital, I had not a friend in the world. But the good lady, the sister of my poor murdered master, gave me money to return to India, where I was servant for some time to an English colonel in whose household I learned the language, and whom I did not leave till I entered the service of the good captain. After you had saved my life, Mujabez, he said. I would have died to save it, answered the Indian. A kind word sings deep in the heart of the Indian. And there is no doubt of the guilt of this nephew, asked Blue Roset. I cannot say. I did not know the English language, then. I could understand nothing told me, except my poor master's nephew was not hung, but put in a madhouse. Did you see him, this nephew? Yes, the night before the murder. He came into the room with my master when he retired to rest. I saw him only for a minute, for I left the room as they entered. Should you know him again? inquired the student. Anywhere. "'He was a handsome young man, with dark hazel eyes and a bright smile. "'He did not look like a murderer.' "'That is scarcely a sure rule to go by. "'Is it, Laurent?' asked the captain with a bitter smile. "'I don't know. "'A black heart will make strange lines in the handsomest face, "'which are translatable to the close observer.' "'Now,' says the officer, rising and surrendering his pipe "'to the hands of his watchful attendant,' "'Now for my morning's ride, "'and you will have the place to yourself "'for your scientific visitors, Laurent. "'You will not go where you are likely to meet. "'Anyone I know?' "'No,' Blue Rosé, "'the lonelier the road, the better I like it. "'I miss the deep jungle and the tiger hunt. "'Eh, Mujabez? "'We miss them, do we not?' "'The Indian's eyes brightened "'as he answered eagerly, "'Yes, indeed.' Captain Lansdowne, that is the name of the officer, is of French extraction. He speaks English perfectly, but still with a slightly foreign accent. He has distinguished himself by his marvelous courage and military genius in the Punjab, and is over in England on leave of absence. It is singular that so great a friendship should exist between this impetuous, danger-loving soldier and the studious French chemist and pseudo-magician Laurent Bleu-Roset, but that a very firm friendship does exist between them is evident. They live in the same house, are both waited upon by Edgerton Lansdowne's Indian servant, and are constantly together. Laurent blue rose after becoming the fashion in Paris, is now the rage in London, but he barely stirs beyond the threshold of his own door, though his presence is eagerly sought for in scientific coteries, where opinion is still however, divided as to whether he is a charlatan or a great man. The materialists sneer, the spiritualists believe. His disinterestedness, at any rate, speaks in favor of his truth. He will receive no money from any of his numerous visitors. He will serve them, he says, if he can, but he will not sell the wisdom of the mighty dead. For that is something too grand and solemn to be made a thing of barter. His discoveries in chemistry have made him sufficiently rich, and he can afford to devote himself to science in the hope of finding truth for his reward. He asks no better recompense than the glory of the light he seeks. We leave him, then, to his eager and inquisitive visitors, while the captain rides slowly through Oxford Street on his way to Edgware Road, through which he emerges into the country. Chapter 5 THE NEW MILKMAN IN PARK LANE The post of kitchen-maid in the household of the Count de Merol is no unimportant one, and Mrs. Mopper is accounted a person of some consequence in the servants' hall. The French chef, who has his private sitting-room, wherein he works elaborate and scientific culinary combinations, which, when he condescends to talk English, he designates plates, has, of course, very little communication with the household, Mrs. Mopper is his prime minister. He gives his orders to her for execution, and throws himself back in his easy chair to think out a dish, while his handmaiden collects for him the vulgar elements of his noble art. Mrs. Mopper is a very good cook herself, and when she leaves the Count de Morole, she will go into a family where there is no foreigner kept, and will have forty pounds per annum and a still room of her own. "'She is in the caterpillar stage now, Mrs. Sarah Mopper, "'and is content to write herself down kitchen-maid. "'The servants' hall dinner and the housekeeper's repast are both over, "'but the preparations for the dinner have not yet begun, "'and Mrs. Mopper and Liza, the scullery-maid, "'snatch half an hour's calm before the coming storm "'and sit down to darn stockings. "'Which,' Mrs. Mopper says, "'My toes is through and my heels is out, "'and never can I get the time to set a stitch, "'for time there isn't any in this house for an underservant, "'which underservant I will be no more than one year longer, "'or say my name's not Sarah Mopper.' "'Liza, who is mending a black stocking with white thread, "'and a very fanciful effect it has too, "'evidently has no wish to dispute such a proposition. "'Indeed, Mrs. Mopper,' she said, "'that's the truest word as ever you've spoke.' "'it's well for them as takes their wages "'for wearing silk gowns and oiling of their hair "'and looking out of the window "'to watch the carriages go in at Grosvenor Gate, "'which, don't tell me as life-guardsmen, "'would look up important "'if they hadn't been looked down to likewise. "'Eliza gets rather obscure here.' "'There is no knowing how far "'this rather revolutionary style of conversation "'might have gone, for at this moment "'there came that familiar sound "'of the clink of milk-pails,' "'on the pavement above, and the London cry of milk. "'It's bugged in with the milk, Liza. "'There is a pint of cream wrong in the last bill,' Mrs. Mellflower says. "'Ask him to come down and correctify it, will you, Liza?' "'Liza ascends the area steps and parlays with the milkman. "'Presently he comes jingling down, "'with his pails swinging against the railings. "'He is rather awkward with his pails, this milkman,' and I'm afraid he must spill more milk than he sells, as the park-lane pavements testify. It isn't Bugden, says Liza, explanatory, as she ushers him into the kitchen. Bugden has hurt his leg, milking a cow, who got kicked when the fly worries, and sent this young man, as is rather new to the business, but is anxious to do his best. The new milkman enters the kitchen as she concludes her speech, and releasing himself from the pails expresses his readiness to settle any mistake in the weekly bill. He is rather a good-looking fellow, this milkman, and has a very curly head of flaxen hair, preposterously light eyebrows and dark hazel eyes, which form a rather piquant contrast. I don't suppose Mrs. Mopper and Liza think him bad-looking, for they beg him to sit down, and the scullery-maid thrusts the black stocking, on which she was heretofore engaged, into a table-drawer, and gives her hair a rapid, extempore smoothing with the palms of her hands. Mr. Bogdan's man seems by no means disinclined for a little friendly chat. He tells them how new he is to the business, how he thinks he should scarcely have chosen cow-keeping for his way of life, if he'd known as much about it as he does now, how there's many things in the milk business, such as horses' brains, warm water, and treacle, and such-like as goes against his conscience. How he's quite new to London, and London ways, having come up only lately from the country. "'Whereabouts in the country?' Mrs. Mopper asks. "'Berkshire,' the young man replies. "'Lord,' Mrs. Mopper says, "'never was anything so remarkable. "'Poor Mopper, come from Berkshire, "'and knowed every inch of the country, "'and so I think do I, pretty well. "'What part of Berkshire, Mr. Mr. Volpe's?' "'suggested the young man. "'What part of Berkshire, Mr. Volpes, "'Mr. Volps looks, strange to say, "'rather at a loss to answer this very natural and simple inquiry. "'He looks at Mrs. Mopper, then at Liza, "'and lastly at the pails. "'The pails seem to assist his memory, "'for he says very distinctly, "'Burly scuffers.' "'It is Mrs. Mopper's turn to look puzzled now, "'and she exclaims, "'Burly Scuffers replies the young man, Burley Scuffers Market Town, fourteen miles on this side of Reading. The Chickeries, Sir York Tristram's place, is a mile and a half out of the town. There's no disputing such an accurate and detailed description as this. Mrs. Mopper says it's odd. All the time she's been to Reading, which I wish I had as many sovereigns, she mutters in parenthesis, never did she remember passing through Burley Scuffers. "'It's a pretty little town, too,' says the milkman. "'There's a lime-tree avenue just out of the high street "'called Pork Butcher's Walk, "'as is crowded with young people on a Sunday evening after church.' "'Mrs. Mopper is quite taken with this description, "'and says the very next time she goes to Reading "'to see poor Mopper's old mother, "'she'll make a point of going to Burley Scuffers during her stay. "'Mr. Volpe says he would if he were she, "'and that she couldn't employ her leisure time better.' "'They talk a good deal about Berkshire. "'And then Mrs. Mopper relates some very interesting facts "'relative to the late Mr. Mopper "'and her determination, which upon his dying bed "'it was his comfort, so to think, never to marry again. "'At which the milkman looks grieved "'and says the gentleman will be very blind indeed "'to their own interests "'if they don't make her change her mind some day. "'And somehow or other, "'I don't suppose servants often do such things.' "'they get to talking about their master and their mistress. "'The milkman seems quite interested in this subject, "'and, forgetting in how many houses "'the innocent liquid he dispenses may be required, "'he sits with his elbows on the kitchen table, "'listening to Mrs. Mopper's remarks, "'and now and then, when she wanders from her subject, "'drawing her back to it with an adroit question. "'She didn't know much about the Count,' she said, "'for the servants was most of all of them new,' they only brought two people with them from South America, which was Monsieur Saint-Muritain, the chef, and the countess's French maid, Mademoiselle Finette. But she thought Monsieur de Moreau very haughty and as proud as he was high, and that Madame was very unhappy. Though it's hard to know with them foreigners, Mr. Volpes, what is what, she continues, and Madame's gloomy ways may be French for happiness, for all I know." "'He's an Englishman, the Count, isn't he?' asked Mr. Volpes. "'An Englishman? Lord bless your heart, no, they're both French. "'She's of Spanish extraction, I believe, "'and they've lived since their marriage mostly in Spanish America. "'But they always speak to each other in French when they do speak, "'which them as waits upon them says isn't often. "'He's very rich, I suppose,' says the milkman. "'Rich?' cries Mrs. Mopper. "'The money that man has got, they say, is fabulous.' "'and he's a regular business man, too, "'down at his bank every day, "'rides off to the city as punctual as the clock strikes ten. "'Lord, by the by, Mr. Volpes says Mrs. Mopper suddenly. "'You don't happen to know of a temporary tiger, do you?' "'A temporary tiger?' Mr. Volpes looks considerably puzzled. "'Why, you see, the Count's tiger, "'as wasn't higher than the kitchen table, I do believe, "'broke his arm the other day. "'He was a-hanging-on to the strap behind the cab.' "'a standing upon nothing, as them boys will, "'when the vehicle was knocked by an omnibus, "'and his arms, being wrenched sudden out of the strap, "'snapped like a bit of sealing wax. "'And they've took him to the hospital, "'and he's to come back as soon as ever he's well, "'for he's a deal thought on, "'being almost the smallest tiger at the West End. "'So if you happen to know of a boy as would come temporary, "'we should be obliged by your sending him round.' Did he know of a boy, as would come temporary? Mr. Bugden's young man appeared so much impressed by this question that for a minute or two he was quite incapable of answering it. He leaned his elbows on the kitchen table with his face buried in his hands and his fingers twisted in his flaxen hair. And when he looked up, there was, strange to say, a warm flush over his pale complexion and something like a triumphant sparkle in his dark brown eyes. "'Nothing could fall out better,' he said. "'Nothing, nothing.' "'What, the poor lad breaking his arm?' asked Mrs. Mopper, in a tone of surprise. "'No, no, not that,' said Mr. Bugden's young man, just a little confused. "'What I mean is that I know the very boy to suit you—the very boy—the very boy of all others to undertake the business—ah,' he continued in a lower voice, "'and to go through with it, too, to the end.' "'Why, as to the business,' replied Mrs. Mopper, "'it ain't over much, hanging on behind, and looking, knowing, "'and giving other tigers as good as they bring, "'when waiting outside the colting, or the Athenaeum, "'which tigers, as is used to the highest names, "'and the peerage familiar as their meat and drink, "'will go on contemptuous about our family, "'calling the bank the shop, "'and asking till they get our lad's blood up, "'which he had had his guinea lessons from the Mayfair mauler, "'and were better left alone.' "'when the smash was a-coming, "'or whether we meant to give out three-and-sixpence in the pound "'like an honest house, or do the shabby thing "'and clear ourselves by a compensation "'with our creditors of fourpence farthing. "'Ah,' continued Mrs. Mopper gravely, "'many's the time that child have come home with his nose "'as big as the head of a six-week-old baby, "'and no eyes at all as any one could discover "'which he'd been that knocked up about in a stand-up fight,' with a lad three times his weight and size. "'Then I can send the boy, and you'll get him the situation,' said Mr. Bugden's young man, who did not seem particularly interested in the rather elaborate recital of the exploits of the invalid tiger. "'He can have a character, I suppose,' inquired the lady. "'Ah, to be sure. Bugden will give him a character.' You will impress upon the youth," said Mrs. Mopper with great dignity, "that he will not be able to make this his permanent home. The pay is good and the meals is regular, but the situation is temporary." All right," said Mr. Bugden's assistant. "He doesn't want a situation for long. I'll bring him round myself this evening. Good afternoon." With which very brief farewell, the flaxen-haired, dark-eyed milkman strode out of the kitchen. "Hm," muttered the cook. "'His manners has not the London polish. "'I meant to have asked him to tea.' "'Well, I'm blessed,' exclaimed the scullery maid suddenly, "'if he haven't been and gone and left his yoke and pails behind him. "'Well, of all the strange milkmen, "'I ever come an eye if he ain't the strangest.' "'She might have thought him stranger still, perhaps, "'this light-haired milkman, "'had she seen him hail a stray cab in Brook Street, "'spring into it. "'snatch off his flaxen locks, "'whose waves were in the convenient form "'known by that most disagreeable of words, a wig. "'Snatch off also the Holland blouse "'common to the purveyors of milk, "'and rolling the two into a bundle, "'stuff them into the pocket of his shooting-jacket, "'before throwing himself back into the corner of the vehicle "'to enjoy a meditative cigar, "'as his charioteer drives his best pace "'in the direction of that transpontine temple.' Mr. Darley's surgery. Daredevil Dick has made the first move in that fearful game of chess, which is to be played between him and the Count de Moreau. Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets.